The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Um, today, I'm joined again by Dr. Zaza, one of our attending physicians here at UMC, uh, trauma and surgical critical care. And then Dr. Walks, who newly got promoted, uh, he is now one of our EM attendings, recently was the third year. Um, glad to have him back. Glad to have both of y'all back. Um, thanks for coming today. Today, we're going to do chest injuries. So we kept it pretty broad. A um, few things we're going to hit, but basically just talking about stuff inside the chest so jumping right off one of the big things we've had talked about over the years and they've recently changed in atls phtls all the fun alphabet soup courses is talking about getting inside the chest for needle decompression finger thoracostomy chest deplacement tension physiology everybody's familiar with hypotension tachycardic JVD, I've probably seen a handful of times in my career, most of the time because it's late and it's somebody that's already tensioned off. It's not something we see quick. But as far as y'all getting inside the chest, let's talk about getting there. What are things that are important y'all see as far as making sure you're getting in the chest quick and indications you'd like to decompress somebody? Uh, first off, let me comment on the JVD portion. So the reason you don't see JVD often with traumatic tension is because most of the time it's also associated with hemorrhage so they're already hypovolemic so they don't even have enough volume to have JVD so which makes it a lot more problematic for their venous return and also uh, more important it's very important to recognize early and address so as you said I mean it's been very clear in all the trauma related training courses um, not just, you know, an advanced um, surgeon-specific literature or level one trauma center. It's really the expectation and the standard of care for anyone who takes care of trauma patients, especially in the initial um, assessment and resuscitation, whether it's on scene or first, you know, hospital setting, um, to be able to both recognize and treat tension physiology because it is very progressively um, life-threatening. So the biggest change that came about was changing the recommendation for needle decompression from the anterior midclavicular um, line to the fifth intercostal space in the mid-axillary line. The reason for that came from studying mainly combat casualties from the war from the wars from the recent wars who when uh, were autopsied <clears throat> were found and had attempted needle decompression in the field were found mostly to not have the needle reach the pleural cavity because there's a lot of subcutaneous and a lot of muscle in that region especially in younger um, patients which is the large uh, majority of the trauma population so for that reason, the recommendation was changed to the fifth intercostal space and the mid axillary line, which also makes it very easy because that's the only thing you have to remember about 
anything in terms of decompressing the chest in the adult. It's the Just same keep, place. Keep it in one spot. All in one spot. It's the same place for the needle, the same place for the finger, and the same place for the chest tube. And really, this is not a skill that's beyond, again, the the um, scope of any practitioner that takes care of these trauma patients early on. So it's very, very important to have the education and understanding of how and why to do it and then enough skill practice to actually do it. It becomes a challenge when you have low volume places that don't see a lot of trauma. Um, and that's where things like, again, the ATLS course, simulation courses, things that like the the work you guys did during the trauma symposium recently becomes extremely important to kind of get a little bit of hands-on experience with that procedure. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think the, the cadaver lab we get to do, we do it as a team every annually, every year, but getting to do an outreach for anybody that can involve, if you ever get a chance to do a cadaver lab, it changes your entire practice the first time I did it of, hey, this is how easy it is to do a finger thoracostomy or even do a needle decompression feels like. This is what it feels like going through. I mean, we've all built simulations going through ribs and stuff, but getting to feel it and see it and then see what it actually does and what it looks like on the inside. When we talk about needle decompression specifically, fifth intercostal, everybody's familiar with using the size of needles, 14s, 10s if you can get the ARDS needles, which are the ones most of us carry on the aircraft or have laying around somewhere. I get it, they're a little more expensive, but something long is what I'm getting at. Something you can actually get inside the chest and it's going to stay there. Needling somebody, I've always... I've always told people it buys you about 10 minutes. If you've got a true injury, you've got like a some really bad lung that's popped or something, it's only going to buy you 10 minutes. It's going to tamp and not back off. But the cool thing is with going to the lateral side, that all that's doing is just marking the spot for where that tube is going to go where I'm going to put a finger in the chest. Mm-hmm. So just keep on poking them. Yeah. If that's as far as scope practice you can go to, just keep on needling as much as you need to. Yeah. What's interesting actually is um, <clears throat> having taught a – few ATLS courses and seeing just a wide range of practitioners, I get this question asked mainly by surgical trainees all the time is, well, what if they're in the emergency room here at UMC at the level one trauma center? Do I still do the needle? I can put a chest tube in 10 seconds. I'm like, no, you can't. Okay. Because number one, you'd be lucky if the equipment is right there. By the time you open up the box, put on your gloves, make the cut, that patient could have coded. Might be an exaggeration, but the, the 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 idea is always start with the least invasive and quickest intervention, even if it's not the most definitive. Just like you said, if it's just buying me a few minutes, why don't I just go straight to the definitive thing? Because nine out of 10 times, you're not gonna have the right equipment, you're not gonna have the right knife, you're not going to have, again, especially if it's not something you do on a regular basis, I'm talking about even my hands, or a senior level, you know, surgical resident, it still takes time. It's a procedure. And the more you rush that procedure, the more likely that you're not going to do proper sterile technique. You're going to drag that tube across the table with it, with all the dirt that came with the patient. And that's just not, not doing them any, any favors. Buy that 10 minutes and do the procedure still emergently, but a little bit more controlled. Um, that's how you get less complications. One other thing I noticed is Again, for people who don't actually do it and they just kind of describe it or study it for the course, they hear needle decompression and then 
no one understands the details of it, right? So we memorize the location, we memorize that we're doing a needle decompression, memorize, oh, you go above the rib, avoid neurovascular bundle. But then you ask them, okay, well, what kind of needle? What size? What are you gonna, what are you, actually the actual physical insertion of the needle? So like you said, larger, better. The, the most common I can think of, you know, that's gonna be in any emergency, you know, provider's reach is gonna be 18 at the minimum, 16, 14 if it's available. And then it has to be an angiocath kind of needle. So a catheter or a needle over a catheter. And then once it's inserted, and this is again, something I've noticed a lot um, when patients come from the field, is the needle gets inserted and then they don't advance the angiocatheter. So they insert the needle, they get the rush of air, and then they take the needle out and leave the angiocath. Well, remember that that angiocath, the needle is past the tip of the actual angiocath. So when you get return of whether it's blood, fluid, air, even if you're doing a line, it's the same principle. If you don't advance that angiocath further in, once you take the needle out, that angiocath is barely in the tissue, probably outside that cavity at that point. So it's very important to actually, mm -hmm. so it's very important to, especially if it's a bigger patient, if they have more tissue. So it's very important to, again, I'm not advocating hubbing the needle itself, but once the needle is in the cavity that you're going after, and just in this case, once it's in, go ahead and thread that angiocath in like an IV. Push it all the way in. That's why we use the angiocath because it's the flexible, non-traumatic thing that can go further into the chest and more reliably be in there and stay there um, until you get something more definitive. Just to touch on the, the size you mentioned a minute ago. A lot of people ask me all the time about peds. They ask about kids. All right, well, well, I'm going to use a 24-gauge angiocath and an 8-year-old, and I'm sitting there going, well, they make 24 shorts and they make 24 longs, and a 24 long is still probably not enough to get inside an 8-year-old's chest. There's plenty of 8-year-olds that are my size, and I'm 6'4", and that there, I've seen an 8-year-old that's about 6 foot. Um, it ain't going to work. So try to, what I tell people a lot is you can pretty much use an 18 gauge all the way down to at least about a one-year-old if you really had to. And then after that, start backing off on size yeah. based off of where they are developmentally. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's just like anything else, just because it's an emergent life-saving procedure doesn't justify, you know, causing harm for sure. The problem again with these kinds of procedures, and I always use, um, cricothyroidotomies as an example is no one knows how to do a crike based on experience, right? Because no one has enough experience in those, um, and especially we don't expect anyone to gain proficiency in that procedure based on experience, unlike a lot of other things that we do, right? You have to do a certain amount of central lines, certain amount of chest tubes to gain proficiency, but that's not something we expect. So it's all about understanding the anatomy really, really well, obsessing about it over and over again, and imagining it on as many patients as you can and then going through the steps in your head because once you need to do that thing you're going to be just overwhelmed with adrenaline it's going to be very difficult to maintain your composure and again you're only going to be saved by having had that picture in your head and that just video played in your head of of how to do that procedure and it applies to all these things and um, since we mentioned kids, just to kind of uh, add a little bit of a nuance to it or disclaimer, I guess, um, less than 12 years old, we still do, we still recommend mid-clavicular line, second intercostal space. And 
as you mentioned, obviously use your clinical judgment. If they're 10 and they weigh 150 pounds and they're six feet tall, just treat them like an adult. And if they are 13 and they're just smaller stature, you know, treat them like a 12 year old. So that's the only difference is children under around 12 years of age go in the intercostal, second intercostal space in the midclavicular line because they have less tissue there. And if you go in the fifth intercostal space, their heart is going to be a little bit higher. So more chance of injuring that. But yeah, I think kind of a couple things to, to piggyback off that, you know, right before we started this, Will, I asked you, what were the things that you thought prevented people from doing this? I think we've kind of touched on one is, is being comfortable with the procedure itself. Right. And we've talked about that. If that's something that you're not comfortable with, there are courses, find a mentor, find somebody that can help you be proficient, right? Because no matter if you know it's the right situation, if you're not comfortable doing it, you're probably not going to pull the trigger as quickly. But I think the other one is maybe the fear of being incorrect about if it's, is this tension physiology, right? Um, because if you're waiting to get a chest x-ray, if you're waiting to do these other things, you're missing the ball. But I think even uh, pre-hospital setting, uh, pr- providers, ER doctors, trauma surgeons, everybody uh, we don't want to be wrong, but I think that that's something else that's important to understand is if, if this is what you think is going on, stop worrying about, well, what if I needle decompress them and that wasn't it? Okay, well, then that's still okay. You check something off the list, and that get, did give you some knowledge to say, well, then what is it, right? Because if you think that someone has tension physiology and you perform a proper needle decompression and they aren't improving, all you've done is given yourself more knowledge about what to keep looking for. And so I think that's another big point is the whole kind of going back, we always use crike as an example. The hardest part of a crike is deciding to do it. And I think this may not be quite the same, but it's similar, right? One of the hardest things to do this other than knowing the procedure is deciding that this is what I think is potentially on the table. I'm going to take it off the table. So I think that's important for people to understand, like especially if it's something you don't do very often, you're less comfortable with. And like I said, that could be any range of practitioner that no one wants to be wrong. Something, a couple, I like how you worded that, especially nobody wants to be wrong. If you want to try to set yourself up for success and practice, something I do, we brought up crike a lot, but something I do with crikes is if I think it's going to be a failed airway or I think it's a difficult airway before we even address it, everybody will watch me do it. I'll pull a Sharpie out of my flight suit and I'll mark the neck and what that tells internally, what that tells people on my team or who I'm with, if they know me well enough of, Hey, look, this ain't out of the realm. I thought this is possibly going to happen. But when that, to your point of the adrenaline starts throwing, all right, cool. I just knocked that out of the way. We're going exactly where I want to go with it. Do the same thing with needle decompression. If you have somebody that is a true trauma, they have blunt injury to the chest and you are worried that, Hey, maybe, I might have neocompressants. I don't have indications for it right now, but if they start to decompensate, they begin to get to that peri-arrest phase. Cool. Just uh, take a Sharpie, make an X. Cool. I'm going here. It takes some of the thought out of it. Also, it kind of, in a way, you're using your patients as practice. Hey, this is, I'm finding my anatomy on a real patient, not on Fred the dummy, where I can say, hey, this is exactly where it's supposed to go. Was I right? And you come into the ER and you look at somebody and say, hey, was I right? Was that, if I were to do this, was that where I was supposed to go? Yeah, I can sit here and talk for an hour about the philosophy of decision-making in medicine and the dangers of indecision. 
One motto that I was taught early on uh, by one of my mentors was, sometimes wrong, never in doubt. And what that emphasizes is it's way more detrimental to be paralyzed by indecision and inaction to the patient. And it doesn't justify hubris or being aggressive in an inappropriate manner or doing things that are not indicated. But you have to arm yourself with enough knowledge, both in terms of the practical aspect of the skill and the assessment and diagnosis. And I think the former or the latter is where people um, have an issue with. It's recognizing it. That's why they don't feel comfortable enough to do the aggressive thing, right? Think about doing ACLS on someone. That is one of the most aggressive things that we do in medicine, right? It is almost assaulting someone, right? With medications, very high doses of extremely dangerous medications, pounding on their chest, doing things to them. But why do we do it? Because we're confident that they're in arrest. Because we're confident in our ability to detect a pulse and decide that someone is not breathing and they're, and they're dead or about to die. So that same level of confidence needs to be also present when addressing these injuries because there's such little time to get more definitive diagnostics or get a second opinion or get someone who's more experienced, quote unquote. Um, and that's, again, it's a very detrimental thought in medicine. Um, the fear of being critiqued, the fear of being um, penalized for it, the fear of being, you know, um, you know, undergo litigation for it. All those things just create generations of providers that are so paralyzed by inaction that patients suffer from it. And so again, it's on everyone to arm themselves with enough knowledge um, and, and clinical acumen to detect those injuries early on and diagnose them. So let's use some examples. So if I have a patient that came in elderly, fell uh, down the stairs, a couple of stairs, came in, was pretty unresponsive, I intubated them, and now I'm doing my breathing assessment, they have no breath sounds on the left side. My jumping to needle decompression there, they have normal blood pressure and their mechanism was minimal. They have no bruising on their chest, no broken ribs that I can feel, no crepitus. Probably not, right? More likely, it's a mainstem intubation. Back the tube so I have time to get an x-ray. But if I get a 20-year-old who was intoxicated, who was in a 80-mile-an-hour wreck along the highway, who's visibly struggling to breathe and has massive amount of bruising on their left side, and I touch their chest and it's Rice Krispies, then I have that level of understanding of what's going on, right? And again, that patient could still not have attention, but then it's okay for me to subject them to the um, potential complications of me doing the procedure, right? So it's that balance and it's extremely fine balance and it gets really difficult in certain situations. But in terms of like airway and breathing, there's very little that you need to look at and understand to make those decisions quickly. Definitely. I think a lot of people also take, as far as identification of pneumothorax or hemothorax, either one, they look at their SAT and they say, okay, well, their their SAT's okay. It's it's 85 or 89 or 90 or something. Well, they're hypoperfused. To the point you brought up earlier, 
it's identification of, hey, is the mechanism there or is the possibility there? You may not feel the flow chest. You may not feel the sub-Q air. But, hey, they had a high enough impact. They smoked a steering wheel on an 80-mile-an-hour wreck, and they can't – they can compensate for so long, but they're also in hypovolemic shock because they're bleeding out because their liver's in five pieces. So there – is there sat low from that? Or is there sat from – you start getting that complex thing. But to your point, clinically look at the patient. If they're obtunded and they're short of breath and I can't hear it on one side or the other, and the mechanisms there, I'm highly suspicious of it. So they start going into peri-arrest, cool. I keep bringing up peri-arrest. Peri-arrest to me is you get that, we brought it up earlier in our, our previous podcast about trauma, but you get that map less than 50 or you get their started braiding out. They You can't get a blood pressure, not getting distal perfusion. And we're getting to the point of, hey, I've started blood, it's not working. Those are the ones I start, okay, all right, let's just go ahead and do this so that before they go into arrest. And I'm just going to, this is maybe a small pet peeve of mine. You talk about pet peeves a lot. But if you're a provider in charge of a patient and you are doing a primary survey, we have it with trainees here a lot. People like to check boxes to say they did something. Y'all have both uh, been in a trauma room uh, here. Is it ever quiet? No. So if you're the person and you're doing a primary survey and you are having trouble hearing breath sounds, that, that's not just a box, box we check to say we did a, uh, the second letter of the alphabet. Tell people in the room, quiet, please. If the patient's awake, have them take a deep breath because putting your stethoscope and on, on one side of the chest and the other and saying, yeah, I think they got breath sounds. When it's when there's 800 people talking, there's no way you heard anything. Um, and so I think if it's the right thing to do to tell people in the room to please be quiet so you can properly assess the patient because if you if – you, in the room, uh, whether it's a nurse who's helping a single provider do some of these things when you're less handed, and they're just saying that out loud when they really didn't have a great idea, two minutes later when they finally get a manual blood pressure and it's 60 over 40, having an accurate idea of if the patient really had breast sounds or not could change your management drastically. And so kind of going on a soapbox, but that's kind of a pet peeve. So, well, that's a lot of reason a lot of times you go on scenes with us and you know, we'll be, it's a chaotic scene, you land in the 55 or some highway, and they'll have the patient in the back of the ambulance, which is awesome for me. One, it's where I'm at home, but two, I can shut the doors. It's the, it's the closing in, all right, we're going to close in the outside world, we're going to hyper-focus ourselves, we're going to focus on the patient in front of us, we can listen to breath sounds, I can feel things, I've got light, light's a big thing at night, and figure out, hey, what's going on, what, can I get a better assessment on them? So we've talked a lot about uh, trigger fingers and moving to the decision tree. Let's talk a little bit about, and we've talked about needling, finger thoracostomy. Come it's back. come about, what, in the last five or ten years, really? Yeah. Finger thoracostomy is a complicated one. Have you ever done one? Oh, yeah. Have you ever done one without any instruments but a knife? Yes. Difficult, right? Very. Exactly. So... Again, just because I'm usually on the receiving end of these patients and, you know, if you told me you've already decompressed the chest, I'm ready with a chest tube. I don't, I don't do them that, that often. The times that we do them are when patients are in arrest or I'm, you know, I really don't have any equipment available. Um, done them a couple of times. They're extremely difficult to do without at least a clamp to pop into the chest. So that's why unless you are 
really comfortable with doing chest tubes to begin with and you really understand kind of the level of pressure that it is required to make it through the, all that tissue, you really have a lot of tough tissue in there, especially again on a young uh, person. I would avoid doing it because it's very easy to start kind of digging in and causing a lot of bleeding and issues. If again, it depends on the patient's level of on the I'm sorry, the provider's level of comfort and skill. If they know how to do chest tubes and they're comfortable with that, go for it. You know, if your needle didn't work or if you did the needle and they retentioned and you need something just more definitive, um, I just, it's just really hard to discern, you know, if there's any benefit to a finger versus the needle in terms of just relieving tension alone. Obviously, if there's a lot of blood, if you have a finger, you'll be able to tell more and you'll be able to decompress more of it. But without having an instrument to pop through, it's extremely difficult. And then using the knife alone to cut through all that can be dangerous. Again, I'm not against it. If you are comfortable putting in chest tubes, go for it. Just realize that it takes a lot of cutting to get all the way through there. I'm glad you said it. The The ones I've done, I've done two that I didn't have an instrument with me. So I pure scalpel, nothing else that was anywhere near sterile. And so the one I had a scalpel that retracted and one of them I didn't. I had like the standard ones we have. They're fixed blades. We chuck them around all the time around here. The one that retracted worked better and because I could use it as a blunt instrument when I got done. Um, I was really spooked. The one that I did without that, it was a fixed blade. I didn't want to turn it around because I know me. I'm I'm going to fart and I'm going to smoke my, you know, radial artery and we're going to have a really bad day. But, but I'll fix that for you. Oh, appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks. But the catch with it was, like you said, it's a whole lot of pressure to push through. It's not just, a you know, I can push my finger in somebody's chest. Now, that being said, if you do have a one clamp, it's all you need is one pair of hemostats, and you can get through. It can be out of a suture kit. That's all you need to get in there, and you can blunt dissect once you're actually inside the cavity. I think they're a great – it's a great bridge, especially if somebody doesn't have a tube available mm-hmm. or you're worried it's a really bad hemo. So, yeah, tell me, in, in the field, what's your decision to do a finger thoracostomy instead of a needle? For me, if I think it's a hemo, a really bad hemo, or if it's something that I don't, if I don't, if I don't have needles with me, obviously, because mm-hmm. um, I always have a scalpel in my pocket. But if I don't have needles with me, or if I think it's a really bad hemo, and I think it's going to tension off before I do needles or anything like that, that that's for me. Or if they're in traumatic arrest right off the bat, I'll just empirically do it because it's tubes for in the pre-hospital world or in the world I work in a lot it's they just end up being more in the way and you don't they cause more harm honestly absolutely yeah i mean for fortunate enough is a say fortunate enough is a training program we see a lot of traumatic cardiac arrest so i feel like i personally have done 20 30 plus finger thoracostomies but a large portion of those are someone who's already in traumatic arrest um and so and I'm comfortable performing a, a chest tube. And so I think for me personally, if I'm standing there and have a knife in my hand ready to go. I'm someone who does feel comfortable enough doing that, but it is way more, it is way easier to become confident and proficient with performing a needle decompression than it is with a fin- doing a finger thoracostomy. And so if you're someone that it can get or is comfortable with a needle decompression, that was what I would make sure I would focus on first before trying to, to jump to this. Um, and a lot of this depends on setting, 
every availability of resources yeah. a lot Again, of different I, I think it's a skill that is very well established as the expected standard of care for someone who takes care of these patients but i just do understand that chest tubes are a more you know involved procedure and even if you learn it in atls or whatever course you take if you don't do a few it's going to be really difficult to do and i just you know um don't want to advocate something that before at least trying the other alternative right yeah i'm 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 on the same page with that kind of moving to chest tubes something people i get i laugh about it but people get so focused on the tube itself and the tube insertion and that not necessarily getting in the chest to do the first part of this which is all a finger thoracostomy is is just the first half of the chest tube and they get so worried about okay i gotta have the, the most tube important here. part of the chest tube yeah exactly and they got to i have to have it clamped and it's got to be at this depth and i got to worry about the x-ray and this that and the other and they and they and people get so focused on that and every time i i'm teaching somebody new i try to emphasize hey the the getting in the chest is the important part after that the rest of it you can kind of slow down but people get so wrapped up in that tube and worry about it and i've been guilty of it and i'm sure all of us have if you worry about the tube inevitably somebody else is going to get excited and that tube's going to drop on the floor and then you gotta get a new one and then it's you know that whole trying to keep it as sterile as you possibly can far as chest tubes what are y'all's thoughts about placing tubes size of tubes and then we'll get to auto transfusers in a minute i can start on this so i know a lot of this topic is talking about uh, when we talk about uh, needle decompression uh finger thoracostomies these are patient patients that are in extremis but let's kind of take a step back if we're just broadening out placing a chest tube in general i think that if you're a sole provider this is not going to be an issue for you but you know in a training program i feel like we have such an issue of everyone wants to rush to do this everyone wants to learn to do it and it takes some of the safety and patient care out of it so another pet peeve uh especially if we had uh michael griggs on here is people want to jump to do this procedure if someone is not an extremist please please stop and think about what is the most comfortable way to do this for the patient do not go and just jab a knife in someone's chest if you have a nurse who can grab you some lidocaine or a nurse who can grab you some pain medication or um don't forget those those things um and then 50 of fentanyl goes a long way yeah and i feel like again if a patient is not an extremist um there is nothing to say that you are not good at putting a chest tube in if that chest tube's not in within 60 seconds um i want to make that clear um a properly placed and safely placed chest tube is a thousand times more important than how fast you did it Think about what you're, what you're, again, especially if you're not very experienced in it, how your ability to perform the procedure is going to be affected when the patient is flailing and yelling and moving around. I mean, it's obviously not going to help. Your likelihood of rushing through something or, or, or you know, shoving stuff when you're not feeling the right stuff that you need to feel and just being stressed out unnecessarily is extremely high. I would say... A chest tube is never emergent because we talked about if it's emergent, you're going to do a needle or a finger. So if you're putting in a tube in someone, right, except for very few circumstances, again, you know, when we are 
at that advanced level where we're able to put it in very quickly um, once we had the finger in and do it safely. But for the most part, unless they're, they're dying in front of you, doing a chest tube without conscious sedation, in my opinion, is, is completely inappropriate. I don't, no matter how good of a local anesthetic you do, it is such an invasive procedure. And people truly underestimate how invasive it is and how painful it is. I've never had a chest tube done. I wish I don't never have to, but ask anyone who's had a chest tube done. It is very traumatic. I mean, you are going through a lot of musculature. You're tearing through things. You're going in the pleura. Pleura is extremely sensitive to anything that touches it. And you can see that really when you do percutaneous tubes and you pass that wire into the chest and they just jump out of the bed. Doesn't matter how much you give them. Doesn't I don't matter. care what K-hole they're in, they flinch. Yeah, because that that irritation of the pleura is extremely painful. Um, you see that with pneumonias and things like that. Any, any pleural disease is extremely painful. And so, again, there's no reason not to do conscious sedation. I don't care if you're busy. I don't care that it takes 15, 20 minutes to set up. I don't care about. I don't care that the surgeon who's doing it is in a rush and needs to go do something else. Then they can come back later, because there's no reason to put the patient through that. Agreed. Something that a lot of us do, working together, flying. Um, these patients you get to, and EMS has done a great job, and they have needle decompressing by you identified. Hey, this is they've got a blunt pneumo. They're altered. Their GCS is still down in the toilet. We've got a head injury, blunt multi-system trauma, we're res- actively resuscitating them, we're giving them blood, all these things, and we know we're going to manage their airway. Like, that's part of my, this is going to happen. Just, it's what order this goes in. Well, if they've already been decompressed, and I've got a decent blood pressure, I'm giving them products um, and calcium and all the things to facilitate it. Why not manage their airway, give them the pain management and the sedation, and then put the chest tube in needle decompress if you have to again to buy you the time positive pressure inside the chest obviously gonna make a pneumo worse but needle versus actually cutting in somebody's chest that's something we do a lot well intubate push the drugs tubes in the right spot fog in everything's good cool here cut mm-hmm. came on absolutely and then if you've ever felt the difference between doing it in somebody that's alive and consciously sedated versus somebody that's paralyzed you have a high, whole lot higher success rate with somebody that's paralyzed, sedated appropriately than you do on somebody that's underdosed on sedation. I've taken patients to the operating room to do chest tubes because we needed to get proper conscious sedation. I mean, there's again, you're not doing them any favor by doing it more quickly. And again, it's going to end up in the wrong place and you're going to end up... They'll move, they'll drop something on the floor, make something unsterile... It's just, again, the patient comes first. And again, if you're not, um, I've, I've told patients before, listen, I'm really sorry. This is going to hurt like hell. And I stuck a clamp in their chest. You know what? That's when you have to do that, you have to do that. And they'll thank you for it later. But when they're just sitting there and they find you come in and you spend, again, 10, 15 minutes setting up and draping and doing all these things, and suddenly you're cutting on them and they're telling you that they are in extreme pain and you're not stopping that's not appropriate so let's talk about size of tubes big big controversies coming out here in recent literature what are y'all's thoughts on bigger the better the bigger the tube the bigger the surgeon if you're doing anything less than a 42 <laughs> what are you doing 
So um, I'll let Dr. Walks talk about this first. Yeah, so we actually had a, what, a couple months ago maybe, a recent journal club uh, that we were fortunate to have Dr. Zaza come and help us with. So um, in my opinion, the days of uh, everyone gets a 36 French chest tube should be over. Um, So there's a lot of, like you said, new literature about doing percutaneous catheters versus your traditional surgical chest tube. I feel like that is not necessarily general generalizable to every hospital because even I have worked in hospitals in the state that do not have the ability to do those. But um, every hospital should have a at least a small variety of different size chest tubes. And there's no uh, really reason to... We just talked about how sensitive the pleur is placing a garden hose um, into someone's chest when there's really no evidence for that um you know i feel like most places should have at least down to a 28 french chest tube but really uh for the most part uh, for your average adult placing the the smallest surgical tube you have is is probably okay for nine nine to nine and a half out of ten patients that you see i think we have we carry down to a 24 on the airframe currently and no, most of the time, most of us place 32s or 36s. I've, because of the recent stuff that came out, I've changed mine. I don't place 36s anymore. I've, I've changed my ways. I'm down to 32s. The only reason, I, and I agree with all the letters that come out, the only reason I say place a bigger one in our world is because our suction is terrible. And sometimes you have to use gravity to help you out to get something out of there. And so, Sometimes it warrants the 28 or the 32 French. Other than that, most how many patients do we deal with? You can probably do a 24 and be fine, or something smaller than that. Yeah. So um, let's go back to the thing we discussed earlier, kind of the philosophy of decision making and how we do the things or why we do the things we do. And we can have a whole episode about this. The the problem is most people learn by just seeing others do things. And if they see it very early on in their training, especially if it's someone they respect or someone that seems to be very confident, they take it um, just like a child learning from their parents. They take it very um, as something that is the right thing to do. Written in stone, it's got to be this way. Yeah, they take it as gospel. And so not understanding the, the mechanics of chest tubes and how they work and why we put them in is the first part of the problem. If you look at any, if you, there are so many examples in medicine, especially in terms of procedures, where at the introduction of a less invasive method of doing it, especially the surgeons are notorious for this, uh, deeming it unnecessary and that it is inferior. It's been proven wrong, right? We used to do cut downs to put in central lines. Then we did them blindly. Now we do them with ultrasound guidance. We used to do open cholecystectomies. Now we do them laparoscopic. Same thing with hernias. Same thing with so many other. I mean, there are so many examples, right? That's part number one is unfortunately <clears throat> there is a just a common culture, especially in surgery, that when something new, especially if it's less invasive and allows a wider <laughs> range of providers to do that procedure, it's just automatically seen as 
less effective without any literature. So that's a common misconception. It's also part of it is just fear of being displaced because you don't have the skill to do it. So you're going to fight it because you don't think that you can learn a new skill. And it does take way more skill to learn anything new, but especially if it's less invasive. Um, so that's part of the big problem. So um, just in general, as educators, we need to be, you know, show our trainees that we're open to new ideas and anything that we do that is not supported by proper literature. It, it, we still do things like that, and that's okay. If, you know, certain things that are not studyable or just haven't been studied yet, um, but it's very clear to make that distinction of I'm doing this thing because I've seen all my attendings do it before and I don't know why, or I'm doing this thing because this is the literature behind it. And that will shape their way of thinking and their mindset and how to approach things. So chest tubes, number one, the goal of a chest tube is to get rid of air and fluid in order to achieve lung expansion and opposition of the lung with the pleura. And that's how you get healing um, of any intrathoracic problem. If we look at the studies that um, investigated just kind of in a basic science physics uh, level, the drainage of tubes based on their size, there's obviously a direct correlation. And the magic number is 28. The 28 French tube provides enough flow that anything larger than a 28 French is not going to have any better flow. So just pure physics, 24 to 28 French is going to have the same flow as everything else. Okay. Now, that's the first part of the puzzles. If you're putting a surgical tube, anything greater than a 28 is really not going not gonna to do anything better. The argument becomes, well, if there's a lot of blood in the chest, we want a bigger tube. Well, think about it. If the blood is liquid, which the pleura has anticoagulation properties, that's why a lot of the blood and fluid in the pleura still is liquid and you can drain it. The blood that's clotted, even if you put in a 80 French tube, it's not coming out. I mean, when you do a thoracotomy and open the patient completely wide open, it still doesn't come out. You have to scoop it out and suction it and irrigate it and, and wipe it with, 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 um, laps and stuff. So bigger tube is not going to drain better if it's blood. So that's a myth. And again, it's just that surgeon mentality of bigger is better. I know better. It's not. Okay. So that's disproven. If it's clotted, it's not coming out. If it's liquid, it'll come out even if it's 28. Then the newer studies looked at, well, what if we just put in a percutaneous tube? That's a 14 French tube. It has to be a 14 French tube. Can't be smaller than that. And see the results. So again, on the physics basic science part of it, there's obviously a lot less flow rate in the, simply because it's a smaller diameter. We know flow and resistance is related to diameter. But then clinically, we found that the resolution of um, effusion was the same at 24 hours. The need for further intervention, whether it's pleuralytics or decortication and VATS evacuation of hematomas, was the same. So why don't we give the patient the much smaller, much more comfortable, less invasive option? So that's that, and that's been studied on a single-centered level and a multi-centered level and been proven the same. So again, proves that all you need is some sort of 
drainage of the pleura, what's liquid is liquid, it's going to come out, what air is going to come out, and that's it. And then just to comment on the point of suction, again, something a lot of people don't understand. Suction in the chest tube is regulated by the pleurovac atrium, whatever you want to call it, the chest tube box. And it's a water seal system. So it's three chambers. They're all connected with underwater hoses sequentially in order to provide a water seal suction. Like I said, the amount of suction is regulated by the box. So as long as you're providing at least 20 centimeters of water suction, then you're fine. And suction only works on air in a chest tube, not on fluid. So the fluid amount has nothing to do with leaving the tube on suction. If the lung is expanded and there is no air space, then you don't need suction anymore. Then all the fluid drainage is going to be passively by the water seal. So, Is that an official Dr. Zaza term, chest tube box? That's just the generic term I use so that people don't think I'm Looking at or whatever. Because, you know, yeah, it has different names of different people. The hardest thing for me is we've, we've had issues with our aircraft not even getting a 20. And that's where ours, ours comes into play with the 32s. But I like the argument of using the percutaneous tubes with a 14 French. Can you, do you have a decision tree currently? on why you would use a percutaneous tube versus a formal yeah. 28? if it's not emergent and the patient's not crashing and I'm decompressing their chest for that reason. So, um, and if it's not post-operative or intraoperative, um, which I've been thinking about switching to those, but I, I just use one of my port sites as the chest tube site. So I don't think there's a ton of benefit to it, but uh, um, I don't know if someone will study that. Maybe I will. But... Um, if they're stable and I'm doing it semi-urgently or semi-electively, then I'm sedating them, numbing them up, and doing a percutaneous tube. Every once in a while, you can't confidently get it in the right space. You just go to a surgical tube. That's fine. Well, at least you've tried. You tried you try the non-invasive before you went all the way home with it? Yeah. And again, you need a lot less sedation. It's a lot less cumbersome, a lot less staff needed. Usually you can get away with just a narcotic, like not a full conscious sedation kind of deal. It's still very uncomfortable. There's still the dilator popping in through the pleura. But if they're if they're directable and they are, you know, you can give them the option, kind of talk them through it. As long as you talk them through it and tell them this is the worst part of it, they usually do okay. And you try to do it as quickly as possible. But yeah, with good uh, local infiltration and a true rib block in the intercostal space with the local anesthetic, you can get it in pretty comfortably i've had a lot of more than i would like experience with pigtails usually mainly in pediatrics mm -hmm. because the way the cookie crumbled we couldn't do surgical tubes in pediatrics for a while and so they didn't have frenches in a 12 year old because ours was the the protocol we had written was 13 or less or less than 13 you couldn't put a surgical tube in and so you had to use a pigtail and we were like, okay, well, a pigtail's got to be better than us needle decompressing somebody 15 times before we get home flying an hour somewhere. And so we started using them, and we've had really good luck with them. I mean, they've done really, really well. Most kids, most of the time, they're pneumos. They're not hemothorax. That's something I wanted to make sure to say. Most, most kids are usually pneumos, and they do really, really well. So it's the whole percutaneous cancer theory in adults thing to me makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you're worried about 
oh, it's smaller holes and it's a smaller tube. It might clog and not work. We'll just flush it. I mean, it's like any other drain. You can flush it. It's still sterile on the inside. So you just use a sterile syringe of saline, yeah. flush it a little bit, yeah. and you're fine. When we talk about something that we used to use all the time, we're having trouble getting them right now, is autotransfusers. Mm-hmm. How do y'all feel about them? I'm against them, to be honest with you. The problem with autotransfusers is they are coated with anticoagulants to prevent that blood from clotting, which means when you transfuse it back to the patient, it's a very coagulopathic blood. Um, the the studies that I've seen when it was tested, it had like an INR of nine. Again, it's pure, purely blood. It has no, no coagulation factor, so that's understandable. But I feel that very quickly, you should be able to decide whether this patient needs an operation or not. Now, I'm talking again from my perspective because I can make that decision quickly and take them to the OR and then I'll just use a cell saver and, and do it that way, which still, again, you're giving them coagulopathic blood that is purely PRBC, so you got to balance it right. But when faced with blood shortages, you know, we kind of do what we have to do. If you're in the field and you have someone who's just hosing out of their chest, is it better than nothing? Maybe it's better than nothing at all. If you have blood, just give the blood and kind of do a permissive hypertension kind of deal. Um, but that's just my um, reluctance to use them is um, I'd rather use real blood products and I can very quickly decide if we're going to be in the operating room. I'd rather use them for me. I've used them a lot and they biggest complication with auto transfusers or one of the big misconceptions is, okay, cool. They got a chest tube. I can automatically use an auto transfuser. If it's got any kind of hole in their diaphragm or any kind of septic component to it, we got to stay away from it. So there's also like that whole, okay, cool. Penetrating trauma. They got shot in the chest or a knife stab wound in the chest and it's isolated. Great. Auto transfusers slam dunk. If it's a blunt trauma to the chest, I don't, I kind of like to rule out, hey, there's not something else going on in the mix. I'd say we see more, way more commonly uh, cross-contamination with penetrating trauma because it kind of crosses everything, multiple cavities. And so uh, we see a lot of, um, especially with left-sided injuries, a lot of colon and stomach contamination with massive hemothoraces. So it's hard to say. Yeah. I, I don't – I think they have their place to get you somewhere sometimes. But, again, risk-benefit. I've always been leery about how much, how much coagulation actually makes it in the bloodstream, and then how are you farting behind it? Do we have to give product? Do we have any cryoplasma, yeah. or whatever to mitigate it? Did you really help? Yes, you gave them volume, but it was it the right volume? I mean, again, it becomes like choosing the lesser of of all the evils that you're presenting. Is it better than crystalloid? Um, is it better than nothing? Is it better than pressors? I don't know. It's really hard. It's really hard. I mean, if I'm give, if I if I really have nothing else, I'll give it and I'll give Kcentra with it. If I don't have blood products to give, that's uh, that would be the least thing I would do. Is give him Kcentra. So we're talking about chest injuries. We've talked a whole lot about getting inside the chest. We talked about a little bit about blunt, a little bit about penetrating. We talk a little bit about pericardial injuries. Just a little bit about them. So there's two big things you worry about: the blunt cardiac contusions and then the true pericardial injuries that have effusions after them and tamponades or the ones that are real fun and have a hole in them is there any one of the things i just named that spooks y'all the most blunt myocardial injury blunt myocardial injury very very difficult to manage a lot of times too how many times have we had patients where 
they come in, they have some dysrhythmias, they were in a car accident, was the chicken or the egg first, did they have a acute myocardial infarction that led to them running off the road? Is this a, man, to me, these are really, really difficult to determine what came first. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think the key for the, um, again, for the initial provider, whether in the field or like the first small ED they get to, is there's nothing you're going to do differently that's going to change their outcome except giving the calcium to stabilize them a little bit more, which you'll give anyways. Uh, point is treat them for hemorrhage because they're still, you know, most likely going to have other injuries that are causing hypovolemia, hemorrhagic hypovolemia, and they're still benefit from the volume. So treat them like they're hemorrhagic if they're, if they're hypotensive or in shock. They have a clear arrhythmia treated like you would any arrhythmia. So they have VTAC, shock them. If they have AFib, give them magnesium and shock them if needed again. Give them calcium, give them magnesium. But I'd, I wouldn't overthink it, especially in the primary survey and in terms of um, the field thing, because if they're just having a bunch of PVCs and junctional rhythms and things like that, as long as it's a perfusing rhythm, just treat them. You know, again, decompress, fix the hypoxia, fix the hypovolemia. Once they perfuse better, they'll get better. Uh, don't overthink the, okay, did they have an MI first or not? Again, they're going to die from hemorrhage before they die from an MI. The the very, very specific situations when it's such a low mechanism and it really doesn't make sense at all what's going on. Uh, and I use this example, you know, 80-year-old grandma crashed her car into a pole at like 10 miles an hour, like right outside her house out of the driveway. Okay. Probably had a stroke or a syncopal episode or an MI. Sure. I mean, I'll quickly rule out hemorrhage, but also keep in mind, you know, just the clinical picture of the mechanism. But if I don't know, or if it was a serious mechanism, I'm treating hemorrhage. Once I'm done with all of that, then I'm going to start looking at the heart. Yeah, I think always treating it as hemorrhage first is important. And unless there are ischemic changes, this is again something I see all the time. People start getting troponins and calling cardiology and things like that. Unless there are ischemic changes on the EKG, there is nothing in terms of uh, percutaneous intervention that a cardiologist would do to fix it. And even if it is an ischemic vessel distribution, ischemic changes on the EKG, if it's a traumatic occlusion, so we had this recently, a young 30-some-year-old, really bad chest trauma, sternum, ribs, everything, ST elevations on the EKG. The, you know, we did all the workup, we did everything, she had a depressed EF, la la la, and they didn't cath her or do a stent. This is a traumatic dissection. I mean, just the pathophysiology is very different. Restoring the blood flow is very different. It might help with later remodeling and recovery. So, um, you know, they said they might do it later um, and see how she progresses. But uh, most of those um, vessel distribution ischemic changes are, again, a blunt injury to the vessel that causes a dissection or an occlusion. But if, you, if you're truly convinced that it was something they had prior to the accident, and they're safe to have dual antiplatelet therapy. So, I mean, if they have a head bleed at the same time, then it becomes a real challenge to, you know, what you do first, because if you're putting a stent in, you got to have those antiplatelet therapies. So I wouldn't dwell too much on it in terms of initial assessment. Again, if they have a shockable rhythm, shock them. Most of the ones that are really bad, uh, just kind of like aortic injuries, we'll talk about that in a second, they don't even make it. Um, if it's truly a really bad uh, blunt cardiac injury that caused 
um, a really bad arrhythmia immediately. I mean, you're just... They went into VTAC and they stayed in VTAC and that's how it went. You know, unless you were standing right there and you shocked them out of it. That's that's how I think about it. And then in terms of managing them, like any heart failure, um, SWAN if necessary, that's how I've done it in the past. Inotropic agents if needed, if they have a decreased, you know, yeah. EF enough and match their arrhythmias and their volume status. I think it's one of those things a lot of people, again, just like we're talking about chest tubes, they get so focused on, hey, they have a blunt myocardial injury. Cool. And they, they want to start going on this ACLS pathway and this, that, and the other. People get so focused on that, they forget about the hemorrhage, they forget about everything else that's going on. For me, it's kind of like, all right, cool. They got a cardiac contusion. What does that mean to me? I'm going to watch their EKG so they don't go to VTAC. <laughs> if they do, it okay, I'm going to manage it. Nowhere in the differential on a primary or even no. secondary survey. And it's it's usually the one I had the other day. Patients started flipping their axis and getting a whole lot of PBCs and PJCs. And fortunately, through an art line enter, I'm like, hey, look, this is perfusing enough with these even these weird ectopy stuff. We're just going to let that be. I'm not going to give an antidysrhythmic. I'm not going to give them something because I could knock out what is driving the rest of it. So yeah. just let it be. I got a little calcium. It's going to be helpful regardless. Uh, magnesium, if you have it quickly, again, not a bad idea. But outside of that, I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, I think, to your point, if someone has a, a recognizable dysrhythmia, treat it. Um, to the same token, I have seen this a couple times. If they are having, like you said, some frequent PVCs or maybe a junctional rhythm, there's no indication to prophylactically give them amiodarone or something to prevent. So I have seen that a couple times. But there's no indication to prophylactically try to prevent against this, even if you think it's potentially on the differential. Like you said, have them on a monitor watch them but but there's no indication to start prophylactically giving a bunch of different medications and even if it is something like afib with rvr i mean there are plenty of times that i let people ride an afib rvr and don't do anything to directly treat that right so I mean, if you have a hemorrhagic shock patient kind of goes back to the same token of treat this as hemorrhagic shock first unless you have like you said 10 mile an hour low low suspicion you can let somebody if their blood pressure is okay and you're giving them blood products have a heart rate of 150, even if they're in AFib RVR, that's fine. Yeah, we're talking about like this narrow window where you're still finishing your assessment, ruling out other major life-threatening injuries, making sure they're not in RVR because they have yeah. a tension, <laughs> right? Um, or yeah, that's a thing too. It is. Yeah. Had one of those yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, once you've established those things and you've resuscitated, then you start working on your rate control, rhythm if necessary if they're unstable. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you can have the scheme that changes on EKG because someone has a tension in the thorax. Sure. Um, so don't don't let seeing a funky EKG or something funky on the monitor. Yeah, they have a pulse. That's all that matters. That's all that matters in that moment. Real quick, penetrating cardiac trauma. My favorite. Yes. I know because I've, I've been there with you. When you talk about penetrating cardiac trauma, mm -hmm. how many of them make it to you? Very few. Very, very few, unfortunately. So it's if you think you have a penetrating cardiac, whether it's I've seen more knife stab wounds personally than anything That's the else. One that, yep. If it's a bullet or something high projectile, they ain't gonna make it. Yep. How do you manage them? How do you look at them? Is it more of as far as pulling the trigger on getting in their chest or using management techniques? What what is your what are both of y'all's thought processes with that? The first thing I want to comment on is who does actually make it, right? So there's two types of 
penetrating cardiac injuries that actually make it to the hospital unless, again, they were dropped off or it happened right outside. One is if it is, they both actually have the same mechanism. It's There's something else that's allowing them to decompress the blood in their pericardium elsewhere. So you have the super skinny patient who gets stabbed in the chest. They have a usually right ventricular injury and they are decompressing the chest, the blood in their pericardium into their mediastinum because they're so skinny. There's not a lot of subcutaneous tissue that's going to collapse and close that hole. There's enough pressure to just keep decompressing it. So that's one that I've had that, that survived and did fine. And the other type is if it's also associated with a abdominal injury. So if it's a bullet, let's say, that clipped the LV like the one we had, and there was communication with the abdomen, if you resuscitate them enough and they're just decompressing the tamponade, they're not tamponading because they're decompressing the blood into their abdomen or their chest, those are the only ones that survive. Outside of that, you know, we talk about, well, if they have an effusion, if they have a pericardial effusion, and you don't have a surgeon available, do a pericardiocentesis and all these things. Realistically, I've never seen that happen. Again, that, that, that patient who had decompressed into his mediastinum, they had attempted a pericardiocentesis, the needle never made it into the pericardium. Again, he survived because he didn't tamponade and had that. I did have one die very quickly because he was intubated before we took him to the operating room. It was one of those things where he was dropped off. We, we weren't there. Um, you know, the, the receiving providers saw that he was unresponsive, appropriately so intubated him, but unfortunately missed the, the, the fact that he had a tamponade, so he immediately arrested. Um, and that's the big thing with those patients, more so than even tension patients. If they have any amount of fluid in that pericardium, it's such a tight space. As soon as you, number one, take away their response, their catecholamine response that they're providing and compensating with, with the induction medications, and you increase the pressure with the intrathoracic pressure, with the positive pressure ventilation, done. Like that is immediate collapse. There is nothing to move through that heart and it's immediate death. So in terms of opening the chest, obviously, if they are unstable or arrested, then we're opening the chest very quickly. If they're just unstable but still have a pulse, we're going to the OR and doing it there. If they're in arrest, we're doing it in the ER. And that's really all you can do. And those patients have the best survival from ED thoracotomies uh, because there's a very specific problem and you relieve it immediately. And because it's very localized, you should also have pretty decent hemorrhage control right away. Because again, the problem is not that they've bled so much to arrest. They just impeded their venous return and as soon as you open that and plug the hole, they do relatively okay. It's just about how long they were down before they got to you. And finding the hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think the yeah, if it's a bullet, it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Knife if it's a knife, it's going to be usually anterior, right ventricle is usually the one that gets the most. Yeah, I think the scenario that, that maybe you're getting at is the scenario where they have a, a patient who's still alive with a contained non-decompressed pericardial fusion. I, I personally have just not seen those make it. And so I think that possible question of do we put in a pericardial drain to try and get the patient transferred, I, I don't think that scenario realistically. Uh, you might have, again, someone who's partially decompressing, they're compensating really well. I would say, so if you're the provider somewhere where you don't have a surgeon, right, and you have that problem, you're going to have that problem. I'm not. 
you're going to have that problem too. Think doing less is more for those patients. If they are awake and talking to you, do nothing. Don't intubate them. Don't stick needles in them. Just sit them up, sit them forward, give them volume to compensate for their lack of venous return as much as possible and get them somewhere really quickly. Um, yeah, what happens if they crash during transport at that point? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so doing the, the, the pericardiocentesis prophylactically, I'm not a big fan of. Um, well, I, don't I, think know, an important, I don't know anybody that is, truly. Well, I think an important yeah. component to that is understanding when you truly understand the physiology, right? I think people may have it in their head. They see the, the cartoon pictures of cardiac tamponade, and they think it has to be this just massive pocket of fluid. Um, that you look at, like, oh, yeah, I could stick a needle in that. Like, I've had plenty of patients that are peri-arrest that have, I mean, just a sliver of fluid. And so, right, the concept is uh, how quickly that accumulates, right? A small amount of fluid that quickly accumulates doesn't take long, right? Maybe someone who has heart failure that has a chronic right. yeah, right. fusion, that's a different scenario than what we're talking about, right? So, even if we're talking about that rare scenario where like thinking about doing a prophylactic, the other component of that is if the patient is doing okay, like you said, don't touch them, but it's probably such a small pocket of fluid that prophylactically doing that, you're likely going to put the patient more at risk trying to do a procedure with a small, small amount of fluid. A lot of the time that blood is clotted. So are you going to even be able to Take drain it? it? Out. I, yeah. I've just never heard of that working again. It's, it is still the recommendation. Again, I've maybe I've done one pericardiocentesis in my lifetime. Again, I don't know how many you've done. I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it, honestly. I've been a part of three. You know, I'd rather open up the chest. I, I, to this day, I'm not. I wouldn't feel. I'm a lot more comfortable being around 80 thoracotomy than I am. Yeah, pericardiocentesis. It's a. It's not. It's not a simple thing. For the surgeons or surgical trainees listening, I get this question a lot, is you have that patient who's stabbed. Oh, that's another myth to debunk. The box, doesn't matter if they're stabbed in the box or not. Any stab wound anywhere can cause a, a, a cardiac injury. Um, and this has been shown to be not true. So the box, yeah, if it's an anterior stab, great. But what if they're stabbed? Laterally, I mean, is that not going to get into their heart and pericardium? So that that's doesn't doesn't rule it out if it's outside the box. Um, but they ask me, okay, so I have this patient stabbed. Their heart rate is 140, pressure is 80 over 40. I look at with the ultrasound, they have an effusion. When you go to the OR, are you starting with a window, with a pericardial window? And the answer is definitely not. This I have enough evidence that they have an injury. I'm going straight for a sternotomy. I'm not inducing the patient until the patient is prepped and draped. I'm not letting anesthesia intubate them until I can hear the sternal saw buzzing and it's working. And that's a very important point because, again, as soon as you induce them, you know they're going to die. You're going to tell everyone that they're going to die and that to not push pressers and do a lot of stuff, you just got to get in that chest really quickly and open up that pericardium. The only time a pericardial window is appropriate is as a diagnostic tool. So they had... Stab wound maybe close to the box. They're completely stable. Their bedside ultrasound, which is not the definitive way to look for this, let's say was equivocal. Um, then that's a diagnostic tool. 
then you're doing it to make sure there's no blood in the pericardium, being ready to do a sternotomy if, if that was the case. The alternative to that is a formal echo. So a bedside echo or a bedside ultrasound fast exam is not sufficient to rule out a cardiac injury. It has to be a formal echo. So if the patient is stable and you can get that you know, uh, reasonably quickly um, and it's a full view echo that rules out effusion and tamponade physiology, you're good. So that, that's just how to kind of think about it on the later management points. I think it's a lot of a lot of people get worried about, you know, okay, I've got to do a pericardial syntesis or I've got to – I'm glad you brought the point of less is more. The ones that I've seen make it that were – we had one a couple of years ago that was a stab wound, knife still in their chest. You're going to move them. we got to stabilize it. This uh, I wasn't on the transfer, but the the other the crew members that were there, you know, they're doing all the right things, making sure it doesn't move or doesn't hit nothing. It was pericardial injury. Well, they're decompressing. It was left. It was right ventricle. It was sitting there, and they're just decompressing the whole way home. And they're like, okay, well, if he's sitting here talking to us, we're going to give him a little bit of fentanyl to so just kind of ease the pain and he like take the edge off of it a little bit. We're just going to let him ride. If he's sitting here talking, I'm not going to do nothing to him because they were so worried about. There was a conversation about if we intubate him, how much interthoracic pressure is going to put on his heart, and he, he would probably have coded. Yeah. So. Can we talk about this impaled objects for a second? Yeah. yeah. It's one of my favorite things. What are you taught, <laughs> Dr. Walks, to do when someone has an impaled object? Always pull it out. So this is one of those things that is just like... <laughs> no comment. You no response. Look at the rationale behind the recommendation of don't pull it out, right? And you see this all the time. It's now like the thing that, you know, um, social media savvy doctors do on Instagram and TikTok. They get a bag of fluid. They take a pencil or a pen and they stick it in it. They're like, this is why you don't take out an impaled object. Well, if anyone um, has gone to med school or watched any medical show, um, they know that we're not just a sack of fluid filled with blood. And 90% of the time, you're not getting impaled with a blunt round object. So that's a silly way of justifying that recommendation. In my mind, leaving in a sharp object, uh, especially a knife, in most instances is going to cause more damage. Because even if you're not moving the patient, guess what? Their heart is beating and it's moving, and that sharp object is not going to plug any hole. So unfortunately, I have no way of proving this, but I am not a fan of leaving in sharp objects. Unless they're, well, let's say it's shrapnel, right, and it's through and through the thigh, and they're obviously like not actively bleeding from it, and pulling it, you would think you're gonna cause more damage on the way out. That's one thing, right? Or again, it's shrapnel chest or something you're just worried that pulling it because it's not a pointy object that you're going to cause a lot of damage that's fine or getting to it even getting yeah. getting to it to take it out even seeing what's what's in the way of it that's been damaged that, that's okay but i'm talking about especially knives leaving them in the chest i mean i feel that's not going to help anything you mean there's vascular stuff that you could cut in there yeah but i mean it's already been cut. yeah 
Well, I'm for me, it's more of common misconception. Helicopters are smooth. Helicopters are smoother. They're not the smoothest thing in the world. It's not like glass. And so, you know, you got to load in the back of the aircraft. You got to, well, okay, well, they got an impaled object wherever it is. Cool. We're going to put them on a helicopter. It'll be smoother. They'll be fine. It still vibrates. Yeah. If it's out of track, you're smooth. And people are like taping it yeah. and trying to stabilize it and pushing it in, in the way. That's fun duct tape origami. Especially man. also if it's in the back and you're going to now transport the patient prone and then you can't get to their airway. You can't do anything. I think it's a little silly, but I know that's what everyone gets taught. It's it's something. It's, hard it's one of those. Well, it's just a dogma of trauma, man. What yeah. Are, what are we thinking? Now I'm um, gonna go change my Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> You've been sharing that, hadn't you? You brought up pneumomediastinum, or you brought up mediastinal injuries with the cardiac stuff. Pneumomediastinum—it's one of the few things that, in my world, scares me. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason it scares me is because I can't put a mediastinal chest tube, and inevitably, every time I deal with a pneumomediastinum, it's usually from a tracheal tear or some or some some kind of tear inside the chest. It's there been excessive vomiting or whatever. And it's always when we're flying out far really high. And so we worry about gas expansion, all those kinds of things. As far as media style injuries, is there anything we can do to mitigate that? Is there anything definitive management? Obviously, if you have a true pneumomedia style, attention is a tube. But so I think you're right to say that pneumomedia style scares um, you or me or anyone. Um, I'd be very scared about non-traumatic pneumomediastinum for sure because that's usually a sign of something really bad. Sometimes it's benign, but but could be something really bad. I'm not very worried about traumatic pneumomediastinum. Um, the reason is I don't have a um, specific number, but most of the time it's benign. A lot of the time it's because of a big pneumo um, that's just decompressing everywhere. Even if it's a bronchotracheal or tracheobronchial injury, it's usually self-limiting um, unless it's massive uh, laceration. Doesn't often happen with blunt trauma. Usually it's a penetrating mechanism. Um, I've never seen a blunt esophageal injury so far. Uh, we still investigate them. We still work them up. Definitely you know, more concerning with penetrating. There is nothing in the mediastinum that you're going to tension because there's a lot of soft tissue there. It's not a free space. Now, sometimes it does dissect into the pericardium and becomes a tension pneumopericardium, which I've seen and I've treated. Um, so, yes, if they have a big airway disruption and it's dissecting everywhere and it gets into the pericardium, that can happen, and then they'll have tamponade physiology. But most of the time, it's nothing that serious with blunt injury with penetrating trauma it's extremely concerning especially if it's in the upper chest or neck and warrants investigation with usually what we call is a triple endoscopy so we do an egd a direct laryngoscopy and a bronchoscopy um, to rule out penetrating injury to those structures after we've ruled out vascular injury if they're stable with a scan sometimes we substitute the the, the egd for an esophagram but rarely seen true tracheobronchial blunt injuries. I mean, it definitely happens. It definitely happens. It's very devastating, very difficult to manage and uh, and fix. But if they are stable and they don't have a massive air leak from the chest tube you just put in, 
that your confident is not disconnected or something, it's pretty unlikely. The ones I've seen that were positive outcomes, and by that I mean they were transferred to a definitive care for center with a pulse. The They have a higher injury, one that you can get an ET tube passed. It's a tracheal injury. They have a pneumomediastinum. You realize, hey, this is a problem. They've got sub-Q air everywhere. We know we're doing chest tubes. We know we're doing this room. And you realize you have a pneumomediastinum too, when usually after the tubes are placed. And so you can insert an ET tube past wherever the actual injury is, and you they make it here. Those are the only traumatic versions I've seen that actually do well. Was that blunt or penetrating? Blunt. And it was from the when they were ejected out of the car, they they think whatever hit was right in here, and it just went down. But well, again, probably don't see them a lot because they don't they don't make it. But I'm saying if if they're stable and they have that pneumomediastinum, it's lower on my differential of things to worry about immediately, and then we just address it later. Again, if the subcube physema is worsening, if they're um, got a continuous air leak kind of deal, um, then we start looking for. Uh, tracheobronchial injuries. So working our way down, something else inside the chest that's usually, if it's a true injury, they don't make it, aorta. So they've got all these vessels in there, the vena cava, but aortic injuries. Does your management change from medical to trauma as far as aortic injuries as long as they've got distal perfusion? Uh, the only thing that changes is managing their blood pressure more aggressively. So usually if I have a trauma patient and their pressure is 150 um, and, you know, obviously control their pain adequately and things like that, then just don't worry about it. That's fine. They're in distress. Maybe they're chronically hypertensive. doesn't matter. Um, if I have a high suspicion for a aortic injury or a proven aortic injury, I'm definitely controlling that blood pressure way more tightly. The pitfall that people uh, get into with this is if you try to control, do impulse control is what it's called, and it's both blood pressure and heart rate because we're trying to decrease the sheer stress on the aorta, which blunt aortic injuries are always a tear, not a dissection. So it's a true tear, full thickness, not always full thickness, but it's in the actual wall of the aorta that's torn. It's not just a dissection flap. And so decreasing the shear stress is extremely important. And so you have to have both heart rate and blood pressure control. Uh, people always are unable, or a lot of the times are unable to control the heart rate. And they contribute it well. They're in pain, blah, blah, blah. Every time we start the esmolol, their blood pressure drops. It's because you haven't resuscitated them yet. So the first step is get them euvolemic and then control their impulse, Right. Um, again, I see it all the time. We start the esmolol drip. Their, you know, their pressure wasn't even an issue before. Their heart rate is 120. Their pressure is 100. Now we start the esmolol. Now their pressure is 90 and 85, and we stop it, and they're still tachycardic. And almost every time that I've gone back, looked at their volume status, resuscitated them better, um, they were able to tolerate the impulse control a lot better. So that's that's usually the first step that I focus on, and then. It's relatively urgent repair. If they're again by definition, like you said, if it's not contained, they're not going to make it. There are the rare occurrences where they become uncontained while they're under your care. Again, you got to be very quick to intervene. Um, I've had one that we suspected turned into uncontained, um, who was just dropping their 
pressure, we were resuscitating them and whatnot, turned turned out to be not a true aortic injury, but a intercostal vessel that had ripped off. Still, I mean, bleeding from the aorta, but it wasn't a true, you know, tear in the in the in the arch. Um, and we got them in very quickly to get a to get a um, evar stent in. Yeah, that's the treatment. The treatment is uh, an endovascular treatment, um, which is obviously way better than any sort of open repair. That's become the standard of, of care for sure. Um, it usually takes a backseat to more life-threatening injuries. Obviously, if there's anything bleeding in the belly that needs to be addressed, that goes first. Next, we look, do they have any significant brain trauma that prevents them from undergoing a procedure? It's usually a very quick procedure. Most vascular surgeons will do it without even heparinizing the patient. That's always a consideration. Because um, again, they're young, they're, you know, you're not dealing with a calcified aorta, you're going to be in there dealing with a tortuous triple uh, A that's going to take hours to fix. Um, these are pre-made stents, they don't need to be custom made, again, really takes 15 minutes in the hands of a, of a skilled vascular surgeon. So we try to get them in as quickly as possible, uh, because it's so hard to control their blood pressure competing with their, again, their other sources of bleeding, their traumatic brain injury, things like that, keeping them in the ICU unnecessarily because they need, you know, those those medications and that tight control. So usually within 24, 48 hours, they get fixed. Um, if they are very low grade, so grade one, um, usually just aspirin therapy with impulse control and then repeat imaging, um, see if it's healed. Grade threes for sure get, get treated. One of the things that I want to mention, a lot of uh, a lot of the medical literature is going to using labetalol because it has a decrease in shear stress. If it's a traumatic tear, I would caution, I caution myself, but I caution others against it because if you don't adequately, adequately continue to reperfuse or resuscitate somebody and you give them something that's going to last a little bit longer than Esmol, which has a pretty quick off switch, something to definitely consider. Hey, Esmol may be a better option because they're actively hemorrhaging. Yeah. Esmol is, is my my only choice. Uh, Labetalol, once once they've stabilized, they've you know, been on the Esmol for a while, everything else is stable, and I'm switching them to oral therapy for long-term management, then switch to um, PO Labetalol, just to get them off the drip. But in the acute setting, Esmol, like you said, very quick onset, quick offset, Nicardipine would not control the heart rate. Um, you're not going to be able to control the heart rate unless you control their volume, no matter how many beta block, how much beta blocker you give them. One last little thing I wanted to discuss was axilla and subclavian injuries. So we see them a lot. Um, one new thing, I don't know if you've even seen it yet. We have a new junctional tourniquet here. We carries not to put our brand out, but it does subclavian artery occlusion as well. Is there anything you like or don't like about that thought of using a junctional tourniquet on axilla or a junctional tourniquet on subclavian? No, I can't think of any issue with it as long as it works, honestly. But yeah, I mean, if there's any question, just holding direct pressure. If it's in the axilla, I mean, if it's truly subclavian, just get them. Get them where they need yeah. to be. Yeah, permissive hypotension. Goes a very long way. That was my next question yeah. was don't. Don't forget permissive hypertension mm -hmm. is a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, A lot of those are you can't see them. If you don't have those tourniquets or you don't have a way to put direct pressure on it, 
Yeah, they're pretty devastating, um, especially if it's a uh, projectile, because again, they're very central vessels are under a lot of pressure, especially the vein. The vein bleeds a lot, uh, subclavian vein. I've had patients die from that and ones that didn't do too well. So yeah, I mean, it's just like anything else. If it's amenable to pressure, hold pressure. Um, don't try to stick any Foley or anything else. Like, yeah, if it's a big gaping wound, pack it with gauze, hemostatic gauze if you have it, but direct pressure. Um, the Foley deal, I mean, what's the likelihood that you're actually going to get it in the vessel that's injured and inflated properly? I wouldn't trust myself to do that. So I would just hold pressure and use pressure dressings and things like that. The Foley thing to me is if you're in a, if you got an axial injury, you got a big enough gaping wound, you could put the Foley in and possibly tamponade something you couldn't put your finger on, maybe. But trying to cannulate a vessel with a Foley to me yeah. is. And, uh, and a Foley balloon is not, doesn't get that big to, you know, so. Yeah, some of this, I think, um, especially the earlier stuff we talked about, if there's something you're not comfortable with, don't be afraid to ask somebody. Um, seek out the training, seek out yeah. the knowledge with those things, again, that are very life-saving life, life saving, um, and very time-critical. You don't have time to transfer, call someone else. Even if you have a surgeon on call, uh, if they're not in-house, even if they're in-house, they could be doing something else. It's it's really that, that level of um, understanding responsibility and patient ownership, again, gets very diluted and lost in, in, in the way medicine is being practiced now. Um, where emergency providers are treated as, you know, just triage personnel or glorified secretaries. And I tell this, I just told this to the new ER resident class. I'm like, a lot of people are going to treat you that way. But you know how you get them to change? Is if you start acting differently. So when you act like you have patient ownership, you've done the due diligence, you've really armed yourself with the knowledge necessary to take care of that patient, everyone will change. Most people will change their perspective of, of you and, and, and give you the respect that you deserve. Not that that's the prerequisite, but that's just how it works. Um, and, and you'll be treated just how you, you approach things. Never stop learning. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of times I've said it to myself and just quietly or just to other people, man, but that's the way that you do medicine. Mm -hmm. Don't forget your pain medicine for chest tubes. Yeah, don't if you ever put a chest tube in me, I better get Ketafol. <laughs> Just a heads up. You're not picky or nothing, are you? <laughs> All right, guys. Well, appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming. This is awesome again. Thank you so much. Pleasure yeah, as always.